and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. This episode is a little bit different than the usual. Ordinarily, we feature a single book and talk about it with the author. Today, we're actually going to talk about a journal. Holocaust and Genocide Studies is one of the preeminent academic journals on the topic, and its first issue was published just short of 25 years ago. For many of those years, Richard Brightman has edited the journal, and I thought it would be appropriate to reflect on the history of the journal and on the field with someone who's been one of its most important figures. Richard is Distinguished uh, Professor Emeritus from, uh, of History from uh, American University, uh, and he's edited the journal, as I said, for uh, 15 years or so. So, Richard, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So, Richard, before we talk about the junior uh, journal, uh, maybe you can say a few words about uh, how you became a historian and, and how you became interested in the Holocaust. Uh, those are two separate uh, mm. issues. Um, I was always very interested in history growing up, and uh, in college, uh, history courses were my favorite courses, but I wasn't quite sure about what to do. Uh, I was offered. Um, a chance for a one-year teaching fellowship after I uh, graduated uh, to see if I liked graduate school and teaching, and that convinced me that I should give it a try. So um, it it worked out. I went to graduate school at Harvard, and uh, um, I I finally got a job. Uh, So... uh, (laughs) It, it wasn't an easy matter then, and it isn't easy now, uh, but uh, I've stayed a historian. And why focus on the Holocaust? Well, where did that interest come from? Um, my first book was not um, in the area of the Holocaust. Uh, it was, however, in uh, German history and the Weimar period, so it wasn't all that hmm. far from it. Uh, and when I was looking for uh, a topic for a second book, um, somebody asked me to work on a project, uh, maybe a conference or an exhibition dealing with America and the Holocaust. And that was kind of the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it took a while. Uh, it, it really... Um, partly emerged when I got involved in looking at all the sources at the National Archives in Washington, because there were just uh, uh, almost unlimited sources, not just in U.S. history, but in German history. Uh, And the, the coverage of the Nazi period was particularly intense. And my uh, department chair at AU, when I got a job there, uh, had asked me to teach uh, a course on Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. So um, things came together. That's an interesting path. And I wonder, I know a number of graduate students listen to the show. Um, what Do you think that's a typical path? Do people come to this field or a field because there's a set of documents that available to them? Or do they come to an interest interest and then go pursuing the documents? I mean, what's been your experience uh, as as you've directed graduate students and worked in the field? Well, I think the field has changed a great deal over time. Mm -hmm. 
when I was in graduate school, uh, there were very few courses in the Holocaust. You didn't mm. really uh, train to become a specialist in the Holocaust because there weren't very many people um, uh, who had established themselves and were training graduate students. Raoul Hilberg uh, was at University of Vermont, but he was a political scientist and uh, uh, not too many historians trained with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really had to kind of feel your way. I think a lot of people uh, who became Holocaust uh, experts uh uh, were trained by uh, Gerhard Weinberg at the University of North Carolina, but uh, he wasn't uh, writing about the Holocaust itself. Mm-hmm. He was writing about Nazi Germany and uh, related uh, diplomatic uh, subjects. So, um, you, you, it, to some extent, uh, people became uh, self-trained as uh, Holocaust experts as they themselves became interested or as the subject uh, became, uh, what shall I say, of more general interest to Mm -hmm. uh, American society and to the West generally. These days, uh, there are plenty of Holocaust specialists who are, you know, hundreds of people, uh, including yourself, I I imagine, are teaching the Holocaust and Mm -hmm. – uh, you know, it's not all that hard to get trained as a Holocaust uh, uh, specialist, uh, but getting a job is still difficult. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the journal. How how and why was Holocaust and Genocide Studies founded? Uh, Yehuda Bauer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem uh, decided that uh, the field really needed a journal, and uh, he was able through uh, connections, and I, I don't know all the details, I mm-hmm. should say, uh, but he was able to set up uh, a journal published by Pergamon Press, uh, which was uh, part of Robert Maxwell's publishing uh, empire. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many uh, people in the audience recognize the name of Robert Maxwell, but once upon a time uh, he was well known as a big businessman in the, mm. in the UK and uh, his um, financial empire ultimately collapsed uh, and uh, Pergamon Press was part of it. Uh, so um, the journal needed a new home uh, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum had um, participated with the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in uh, supporting uh, the journal initially, and um, uh, it was around 1994 when uh, uh, Yehuda made a decision and uh, the museum made a decision that it was perhaps a good time to shift uh, the base of the journal to the United States and to the museum. So that's when I was invited to become co-editor with Bauer for a limited period of time and eventually to move up uh, to the position of editor. And that happened in 1996. 
I went back and I looked at the table of contents uh, for the first couple of years of the journal, and, and I was impressed by a couple of things. Uh, and one of those is that the number of contributors from across the globe. Um, I wonder how how was the journal able to establish that kind of international presence so quickly? Um, well, to some extent, it was international from the beginning because yeah. of the Israeli American uh, connection. Um, uh, maybe I should talk uh, about what I know best, which is my sure. own uh, yeah, strategy. Uh, I was quite busy uh, when I uh, moved up to the position of mm-hmm. editor, and I was uh, half uh, berating myself for having taken on another important responsibility. Uh, And I said, how am I going to do this? Uh, I can't really predict, you know, where the cutting edge of this field is, let alone where it's going to go, you know, in the next five years or the next 10 years. And I'm not as well networked as some people, and I'm not going to, uh, be in a position to call up uh, Professor X and uh, beg for uh, a manuscript on such and such a topic. And eventually I came uh, to the conclusion that I should uh, make a virtue out of necessity and simply uh, make it known through whatever channels uh, were available that uh, we were going to publish good scholarship Mm -hmm. on whatever uh, area of the Holocaust or genocide uh, uh, people were writing about. Uh, You didn't have to be in with the editor or an associate editor. You didn't have to be uh, part of the uh, currently uh, trendy area of the field. We were going to take the best of what came in uh, submitted to peer review, edit it carefully, and um, do the best we could with it for academic readers, but also for a general educated audience. And because the museum was uh, fortunately willing to support the journal, not only in terms of publication costs, but um, basically hiring Uh, one or more uh, assistant editors to help out with the editing, uh, that gave us the chance to uh, infuse more quality and uh, value uh, to the readers than some other journals that were uh, financially limited. So um, we put out the word and for the first couple of years, we struggled to get enough good manuscripts, but mm-hmm. we kept uh, the word out there and we kept getting more and more. And uh, it's uh, it spread. We now get manuscripts from all over the world. Um, we don't, uh, what shall I say, slot um geographical areas or particular themes. Uh, People sometimes ask, you know, why don't you have more on genocide in Asia? Why don't you have more on 
uh, non-Holocaust topics, I say, submit the manuscript Mm -hmm. and we'll evaluate it. And if it gets through, we'll publish it. So um, it's really um, a question of judging what is a good quality manuscript and then uh, editing it well enough so that uh, a broad audience can read it. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. about that because um, <clears throat> one of the things Yehuda Bauer talked about in his introduction to the journal was, in fact, the, the the way in which his imagination for the journal was distinctive because it combined Holocaust and genocide studies together. Um, how so? So you've kind of touched on this already, but. How do you see that those two feet? Is that one field? Are those two fields? Are those how do those fit together in terms of your imagine your understanding and imagination? And and is and do you have to think through that connection as you select articles or or maybe you already said that you just take the best of whatever is sent? Uh, Generally speaking, we take the best of what comes in. Um, We don't require people. who write on, uh, what shall we say, other genocides, mm-hmm. genocides other than the Holocaust. We don't require them to make a connection with the Holocaust, nor do we require people who do sort of straight Holocaust uh, topics uh, to uh, make broader comparisons, but um, often they emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when we get uh, comparative uh, topics, um, comparative manuscripts, uh, we're particularly happy and we try to, uh, do well by them, but, um, we do have, uh, a general tendency to see things either in the area of the Holocaust or in the area of, mm-hmm. uh, other genocides. The journal, um, historically has had a good number of high quality manuscripts on the Armenian genocide. Mm-hmm. And um, we published a good deal there. We've had a smaller uh, number of quality manuscripts on more recent genocides, but we are always happy when something in that area makes it through peer review and mm-hmm. uh, gets published. So um, again, uh, we sometimes get criticized because we do more in the area of the Holocaust than more recent genocides, but um, it's largely a function of what comes in and secondarily what gets through peer review. A similar kind of question. You, you, you haven't talked much about discipline. Um, do you think of the journal as interdisciplinary or historical or, or do you, prefer a mix? What's the editorial vision for that? It is uh, historically an interdisciplinary journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to say so in our uh, mission statement. Uh, um, I would say the majority of articles published are either by historians or by political scientists who are pretty close to history. Uh, but uh, in the early years, there were a good number of people uh, when Yehuda, Yehuda Bauer was editor who were in 
philosophy or religion. We still have some articles. One of our uh, most downloaded articles is by somebody in philosophy. Um, hmm. uh, and uh, we get a fair number of articles in literature. I, I would say uh, sociology is not as common, uh, religion not as common these days, uh, but uh, we we like to see interdisciplinary uh, pieces, both uh, within uh, particular articles, people who can make use of different disciplines, but also uh, in a given issue of the journal, if we have you know, uh, three articles by historians. It's good if, you know, one or two uh, are by uh, people outside of history. So you use the term peer review, and and some of our audience will know exactly what that means and perhaps be peer reviewers. But probably a good percentage of our our audience doesn't have a good feel for, for what the process is for selecting articles that go into a journal. So so can you say a little bit about how an article moves from submission to actually appearing in the journal? Happy to. Uh, so uh, we get uh, usually entirely unsolicited manuscripts submitted to us. Uh, occasionally somebody will inquire first, I've got a manuscript on such and such a topic. Would you like to see it? And we say it. Virtually always say yes, unless it's, uh, as far as we can tell, irrelevant to our, the, either the Holocaust or genocide. Um, so it comes in, uh, and I like to read everything. Uh, things have gotten to the point where um, once in a rare while, I'll rely on my two associate editors to do the initial screening, but I read virtually everything. and then. Um, the manuscript goes to one of the associate editors, Gabby Finder, whom you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Zvi Gittleman, whom you may know. Uh, and uh, if either reader in-house thinks it has a chance of being published, we then look for experts on the particular topic of the manuscript. And we all know people uh, who are academics and, uh, you know, sooner or later we find experts. And the experts um, give us a confidential uh, opinion, uh, which is suitable for sending to the author, at least in paraphrased form. Sometimes we send, when when readers are diplomatic, we send the actual uh, evaluation. When they're perhaps a little bit tactless, we will uh, uh, paraphrase some things, but uh, we basically send the reading to the author uh, and in a blind way. The identity of the, the readers are not disclosed to the author, the identity of the author is not disclosed to um, the readers. So it's uh, double blind, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes, for a normal article, it takes two 
uh, recommendations to publish uh, before we're willing to publish. Uh, we have something called a research node, a kind of specialized and usually shorter article, and we only require one recommendation to publish for a research note. Uh, occasionally, uh, the two readers will disagree, and then we have to go to a third reader, and we usually give the author a chance to revise before going to a third reader. So, uh, you know, I'd like to say that um, peer review is a perfect process. Uh, it isn't. It's merely the best thing that the academic world has come up with. Um, uh, once in a while, uh, we published some things that reviewers liked better than I did, uh, <laughs> but we went ahead and published it. Uh, and uh, the main uh, intervention of the editor and the associate editors is initially where we screen things, some things out entirely, and in other cases, we make some suggestions to the author. You really ought to revise this in such and such a way before uh, we send this out for peer review. But ultimately, the peer review is uh, what decides things most of the time. So how long does it take for, a, for an ordinary article to move from the point where it crosses onto your desk or onto your email folder to, to actually appearing in the journal? Uh, well, that depends both on peer reviewers, but mm -hmm. also on our backlog. Uh, uh, the peer reviewers, uh, we try to ask them for a decision and a, a you know a written uh, piece of advice that can be sent to the author within a couple of months, but sometimes it takes longer. Um, if it goes to a third reader, it's going to take longer still. Um, our backlog at present is about a year and a half. So uh, even if something gets through tomorrow, it's not going to appear uh, immediately. Uh, and we like to maintain a um, sort of uh, uniform standard, standard of um, keeping things in line, but occasionally something will be on a topic that is mm -hmm. so current and urgent uh, that uh, we will move things up or back um, uh, in the interests of uh, the journal and uh, the particular uh, author's uh, need to get something out right away. So if you were talking to a graduate student, and uh, what would you say in terms of how best to um, what what can that person do to submit an article that is likely to be approved or at least be competitive to approve? How, what 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 does a graduate student need to think about as they create an article? Okay, well, I'll you know I taught graduate students for many many years, so uh, I, I will repeat the advice that I gave to them uh, <laughs> probably too often. Um, First of all, you have to be interested in the topic because it's a lot of hard work and mm -hmm. uh, you don't have the interest to sustain you. Uh, it's not uh, going to show uh, in the quality of the work. Uh, secondly, um, 
you need to catch the reader's attention right away. Uh, so the first paragraph really has to uh, be uh, enthusiastic or uh, attention grabbing in some respect. Sometimes it's through telling a uh, particular particular story, but more often it's you know well here is an urgent problem uh, in the field in the world today. Somehow uh, catch the readers attention. Then um, you need to explain your uh, approach. Uh, What what piece of this problem will you address in this particular manuscript? Then you need to, in anywhere from a page to uh, a few pages, you need to explain that well, actually, you're not the first one in the world to have addressed this topic and this uh, subject uh, before. So you need to summarize other relevant pieces of uh, uh, the literature. Uh, and uh, sometimes you're agreeing with what has been done before, but you're adding something to it. Sometimes you're disagreeing with what has been done before. Sometimes you're um, looking at a known source, but reading it in a different way. Sometimes you've discovered an entirely new source, which causes you to come to different conclusions than, or uh, to, to extend a topic that has been covered before. And, uh, you, you kind of want the reader to be able to have the context by the time you go into a uh, presentation of your story, of your evidence, of your argument. And you, usually you need an argument. This is probably more true in some fields than others, but um, if, if you're simply narrating, uh, the odds are, uh, the peer reviewers will say at the end, why is all of this important? So uh, it helps to have a clear argument, but you may or may not present your argument up front. Sometimes uh, it works better to present an argument uh, in its fullest form at the end of the manuscript after you prepared the, the way step by step uh, through a close uh, reading of your evidence. Uh, So that's kind of the basic structure. Uh, It's not the only structure that works for a journal article, and we've certainly published uh, good uh, articles that didn't have that structure, but uh, that's a kind of template that a graduate student can use and play off of in trying to figure out what's what's going to get through. Well, that's good advice. Um, let, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Holocaust and Genocide Studies is, is one of the preeminent journals in the field, but it's not the only one. How, how do you see your journal fitting into this broader ecosystem of journals and, and of book series about, about the topic? Do you see yourself as a... Uh, 
competitor, collaborator, just working separately? Do you even think about other journals as you do your work? How does that fit? We got started so early, uh, mm. 1986, uh, uh, that uh, partly through longevity, we've uh, established ourselves. Um, I do look at other journals occasionally, but I can't say that I read them, uh, Holocaust and Genocide Studies uh, journals, that I read them uh, all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Gabby Finder uh, reads a good number of them. Uh, so uh, I guess the best, the fairest thing to say is that um, uh, we work separately. Uh, mm-hmm. When we get something that isn't quite uh, good enough for us or isn't quite right for us because of the way uh, uh, the peer reviewers reacted to, you know, the subject. Uh, we mention other related journals as possibilities. And when somebody's complained that we've uh, made a mistake, uh, we often come back and say, yes, uh, we may have made a mistake and our peer reviewers may have made a mistake, but if we did, uh, the odds are you're going to find another good journal in the field. And so uh, you have our good luck. So you're in kind of a unique position uh, as, as having been editor for this long of time and, and seeing the work that's being done. How how is the how have you noticed the field changing in the years you've edited the journal? And, uh, whether that's in the kind of articles you get or the kind of people who are sending them, how is how have things changed in your years? Okay, uh, I could probably uh, tackle that from uh, several different angles. Mm. Uh, you've already noted one. Uh, it's become a journal that gets some attention worldwide. Uh, we get readers in. Asia and Africa, we get submissions uh, in Asia and uh, Africa. Uh, we get submissions from Latin America. We, you know, uh, we have a worldwide reach. Um, I would say that uh, the U.S., Europe, and Israel are still um, the regions that have the greatest involvement, but um, it's a question of what gets through peer review. Um, uh, In terms of areas of coverage, well, um, we do get more uh, coverage of other uh, non-Holocaust genocides. Um, We get within the Holocaust, more coverage of Eastern Europe than uh, uh, we used to. This is partly a matter of archival sources uh, becoming available, but it's also uh, the way in which the field has uh, shifted. Um, I am not sure I could draw clear conclusions about the balance of disciplines beyond what I said earlier, which is that once upon a time, philosophy and religion were uh, very important and they've become important, uh, but not quite as uh, 
numerous uh, the manuscripts uh, as in the early years of the journal. Um, within history, uh, gender has become more important. Uh, we get a good number of submissions on gender. Uh, some get through, some don't. Uh, mm-hmm. Being uh, popular is one thing, uh, but uh, it still has to get through peer review. <laughs> so um, uh, that's a kind of rough sense of where things uh, have have gone. Uh, the heart of the journal is still uh, the Holocaust. We get, you know, uh, the majority of submissions dealing uh, with the Holocaust in Germany itself and in German controlled areas. Uh, but we get, you know, manuscripts on the United States during the Holocaust or uh, other countries during the Holocaust uh, quite frequently. Journals. Journals have existed for centuries in in something like the same form, certainly for decades, in a world which has changed technologically and economically. What, how are these changes that we're living through, are they going to shape the, how are they going to shape the future of academic journals? Do you see academic journals persisting in more or less the same form or will they change? What, what, what do you think of the future? I, I'm old enough that I'm probably not the best one to predict the future, <laughs> uh, especially because it depends on technology. And uh, I, I can tell you one thing. We used to fixate on the number of individual subscribers to mm. the journal. And that number has gone down and down, not just with us, uh, but um, with academic journals generally to the point where libraries, uh, you know, wonder, do they have to subscribe uh, to uh, journals? Uh, yes, they do. Um, <laughs> but um, more and more people uh, either download entire issues of the journal or uh, download individual articles. And, uh, you know, this, uh, really has changed the quote-unquote market uh, for academic journals. Uh, You know, we used to talk about hundreds of uh, journal subscribers. Uh, Now we're talking about, uh, at least in one recent year, more than 100,000 downloads of journal articles. So... um, I think some things are gained and some things are lost. I think Mm -hmm. uh, readers do not get the same level of um, comprehension and involvement when they read something on screen as they do uh, when they read a, a physical issue of the journal or a book. Uh, But in terms of convenience, in terms of quick exposure and use in a research paper or uh, in a dissertation, uh, the convenience of digital access is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're just going to have to come to grips with this. And I don't know what technology uh, will uh, be available in 20 years for journals, but 
it will probably be better than what there is today. So you mentioned in 20 years, and I, I, I won't phrase it quite that way, but but you have a sense of perspective. Where where would you like to see Holocaust studies or Holocaust and genocide studies as a field or a journal, whichever you'd like to, to talk about or both? Where would you like to see them go in the next decade? I'd like more people to recognize uh, how important this topic Mm -hmm. is. Uh, Genocide is about as terrible a human experience as one can imagine. And we as human beings need to learn from the past. Uh, If we can't learn from the worst of all human experiences, how are we going to make ourselves as individuals and as societies better as history moves forward? So I would like to get that uh, sense across. And to some extent, this is a plea for history generally as uh, relevant to each of us and to our societies uh, every day and in almost every way. I, uh, I used to make a case for the importance of history, and I now have a um, very current example that backs that up. Uh, there, this is not unfortunately related to uh, genocide, but uh, I will tell the story anyway. Mm-hmm. There was a guy in New Zealand uh, who um, launched a campaign and kept it up year after year to commemorate the victims of the uh, 1918 uh, so-called Spanish flu. Uh, And uh, eventually he got the ear of a leading politician in New Zealand who became a prime minister. And that memorial was built and completed in 2019. Mm. And that prime minister was well aware of the danger of a pandemic when COVID-19 hit. And New Zealand today has no active cases of coronavirus. They had a very strict lockdown. Uh, The last time I looked at their death totals, uh, 21 people in New Zealand had died from coronavirus. So, uh, yes, one can learn things from history, and some of them are even uh, practical. So we've taken a lot of your time. Is, is, Is there anything else about the journal that you'd like to say that I haven't thought to ask about? Uh, Well, uh, we encourage people at all levels to submit to the journal. We occasionally get some things from undergraduates um, or master's students. They don't usually have enough um, grasp of the field overall to get through peer review, but um, we'll look at them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, 
uh, read the journal first to get an idea of what kinds of things we publish. And if you think you've got something that's important, please send it to us. And you can uh, go to uh, Oxford University Press's website or to the museum uh, website and get further details about uh, where to send and how to send uh, to the journal. Uh, so uh, uh, please send us uh, your thoughts. So that's for the journal. What about you? What are you doing? Um, you're emeritus. Are you continuing to write or is editing your main academic um, activity nowadays? What What's up for you next? Uh, well, I'm sort of between books. I uh, came out with a book called The Berlin Mission mm -hmm. in October 2019. Uh, I had promised to write uh, for a uh, collection, an article on uh, the Allies and the Holocaust, and I'm working on that article right now, and I'm still uh, debating uh, what topic I will turn to next for my next uh, book project. I've said this on the show a few times that I've only had one person when I've asked that question, I've only had one person who, who I think if I recall right, his answer was I'm going to go garden because writing a book is a very hard thing to do. And I deserve a break <laughs> and academics don't seem to take breaks, but uh, I know you and I have chatted about maybe doing an interview with Berlin mission, and I'm hoping that we can arrange that and you'll be back on the show. But uh, until then, thanks so much. Um, for talking to us about the journal, as you said, uh, and, and it, it's, it's a wonderful journal, and I've been a subscriber for decades now, um, which I guess says something about my age, but um, but I highly recommend it. And, and as Richard said, go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum website or to the Oxford Press website, and you can subscribe there um, and support the work that Richard and, and all of his colleagues are doing. So. Richard, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, and until next time, uh, have a wonderful summer. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks. It was fun talking with you.